Hey, subscribe to the Fashion League podcast on iTunes. I have such a good episode for you guys. You're welcome. We have fashion and culture writer Christina Binkley as a guest. Christina has worked at the Wall Street Journal for 23 years, where she was the news editor and later style columnist. She's a frequent on-air commentator, and she critiques fashion runways from New York to Paris. Christina is also a contributor to The New Yorker on the Culture Desk. If you guys remember last episode where I mentioned the Tiffany Trump situation that went down at Philip Pline's fashion show during New York Fashion Week, when someone posted a picture of the empty seats next to Tiffany Trump, stating no one wanted to sit next to Tiffany, well, Christina is the one who snapped the moment and uploaded it to her Twitter account and ignited the media commentary. Christina is also the author of the New York Times bestseller, Winner Takes All. She's currently writing a book about the fashion business. Let's chat her up. Thanks so much for jumping on the Fashion League podcast today. I'm so glad to have you. I'm happy to be here. I just gave a brief introduction for the podcast listeners of your 23-year career as a style columnist and news editor at the Wall Street Journal, which you just transitioned out of in January of this year. And now you are working on two books and you just returned from Milan. So did I skip anything? Uh, no, I, you know, I've, I've, I've also become uh, recently become a contributor to the New Yorker, which is turning out to be a lot of fun. They're wonderful people to write for, and it solves it solves an issue I hadn't foreseen when I left the journal, which was that I'm a journalist who's accustomed to writing a lot and having ideas and getting something in the paper every week, and I was suddenly faced with not having an outlet. Um, that was that immediate. And it kind of freaked me out. Good that you found a solution. But <laughs> let's start at the beginning. I see that you studied economics at Indiana University, and then you went on to earn your master's in journalism at Columbia University. So right. how did you go from studying economics to pursuing a career in journalism? Uh, that's a very good question, Michaela. And I have to say, it's um, sort of a good example of my general philosophy in life, which is you sort of trip from one uh, one adventure to the next. I, as an as an undergraduate, never even thought about journalism as an option for a career, um, and, and went out worked in finance for a few years and decided that I wanted to go back um, and dive even deeper into economics. So I applied to and was accepted it, into the economics PhD program at the University of Pennsylvania. And when I was there, I simultaneously realized that I uh, really didn't want to spend my life uh, as an economics wonk. And, um, and I became friends with a woman who was married to an editor at the Philadelphia Inquirer and just coincidentally ended up hanging around a lot of journalists and seeing what they were doing and realizing that that um, was very appealing to me. It's sort of like a conk on the head knew that I wanted to do that for the rest of my life. Are you from the Philadelphia area? I see a lot of Philly connection here. Yeah, I, I um, not originally. I was actually born in Prescott, Arizona, but I grew up on 
the eastern seaboard from seventh grade, um, th- you know, through high school, and uh, lived in in just outside of Wilmington, Delaware, so which is close to Philadelphia. Right. So there's there's long been a, a connection there for me. In your years covering fashion in the big four cities, New York, London, Milan, Paris, how have you seen the cities differ and has it been the same sort of coverage or how have they changed roles over the years? You know, I think the basic roles of each of those cities is, is, has been pretty steady and, um, you know, it's, it's one of those things of watching national cultures. It's interesting to see how the fashion weeks really do reflect um, the, the, the history and cultures of this, of those four cities. So, and, and, and the countries that that they rest in. So you've got New York fashion week is, is the first um, fashion week to go. um, But we're actually, of course, the youngest country and we're a, you know, a country known for, uh, you know, for Nike, just do it, get it done. Um, And, and that's what New York fashion week is. It's a kind of a crazy free for all. Um, It's way too busy trying to do way more than it should. Um, There are a lot of brands there fighting for space and attention and it's a much more wearable fashion week. The brands that tend to show in New York tend to be, you know, straight to the shore store shelves. There's not a lot of of uh, sort of avant-garde fashion happening in New York, which makes sense for this country. Um, you know, as opposed to if you go to London, that's where a lot of the craziest, freshest ideas come from. Uh, it might be in part because London has Central St. Martin's, which is an extraordinarily creative fashion school. Right. And um, and has has is behind some of our the world's greatest fashion talents these days. But, um, you know, you're, you're getting scrappy little brands in London that that often often have ideas that are much larger than the than the scale of the of the companies behind them. Um, J.W. Anderson, for instance, started um, I and mean, he's really changed the 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 look of menswear now several years ago he was putting out um men in female clothing suits with piping dresses skirts things like that it's already become a little bit normalized to our eyes but it, it was shocking 5 years ago and milan is which is is really honestly one of my my favorite fashion weeks it's probably the most derided of fashion cities um in in sort of among editors because Milan is known for wonderful quality and beautiful clothing, but not necessarily the most exciting looks out there to put on magazine pages. Um, although that's changing a lot lately. That's um, Gucci shows in Milan and, and Gucci is a uh, hot brand right now. That's really probably the leading contender to change the clothes that we're wearing. But I, I love Milan because, well, it's because it's got great food and, yeah. um, and because, the people who make clothes there tend to just really be in love with lifestyle and with beautiful fabric and um, and comfort and, and in a very kind of honest way. And then, of course, Paris always blows our socks off. We've got, you know, brands like Comme des Garçons, which don't even in, adhere to necessarily to body shapes when they're when they're making clothes. But they're so intriguing and and full of interesting stories and um and and fantastic ball gowns from designers like Giovanni Valley. So you you know it's a it's a smorgasbord of amazing fashion in Paris. You mentioned Gucci, and I recently read a quote 
from Alessandro Michele, who is the creative director there. He For this collection, he sort of um, did a tribute to history and the recycling of fashion throughout the time. And he said something like, it's a little unsettling or a little... Um, wrong for us to each season have to try to tell a new story as designers and so how do you feel about I feel we've read a lot of criticism of um, his designs being the same for the past couple seasons do you have any opinion of this about slowing down the fashion cycle Yes, I do. A very strong opinion. And um, and I completely disagree with that line of criticism. I think I, I you know, I, I really do try to come at my observation of the fashion world from a consumer's perspective. And I don't think it helps anybody to have fashion brands just taking constant, complete right turns and about faces every season to come out with something completely new. And you end up with this feeling that everything in your closet is old um, and and can't be worn again, which might seem right to brands that want to keep selling more clothes, but ultimately makes people sick of fashion. Um, and as opposed to if you look at, you know, uh, Michele has now been doing two, he's got two full years in. Um, it, it seems longer almost. It's almost amazing to think that he's only been doing this for two years. But if you take um, a look from his collection, the very first one that he put on the runway and at the beginning of 2016 and matched it with something that we saw on the runway two weeks ago in Milan, you wouldn't know that they were from different collections. The, the colors would blend together, the, the sort of idea of what you know, this is sort of, <coughs> I was often call it his poetic poet in residence look, but a sort of dreamy vintage quality that he has carries on through. So the the clothes are instant classics, and they're going to work in your wardrobe today, tomorrow, and three years from now. Excuse me for coughing. That's okay. <laughs> I think that's really important from a business standpoint as well as from a sort of an art standpoint. When you were mentioning that New York is kind of a cluster of a bunch of designers trying to do a lot of things, and it's one of the larger cities as far as shows are concerned I think they show like 200 designers and then I think Paris has the least like something like 59 do you think there's a correlation between people drawing out of New York City and deciding to go to other cities to show or completely foregoing fashion week altogether or what is yeah, your opinion? Yeah I do I think um, it's really hard there are some weeks that New York has been getting better about um, discouraging certain designer, you know, some, some houses from, from showing, encouraging them to do presentations or sort of less formal things just in the last year or so. It's a, it's a response to that just overwhelming deluge of shows that was happening where there were, there were several hours during New York fashion week that would have five shows at the same time. And there's just no fashion team that can cover um, a week that has hours like that. So um, designers just weren't, you know, I feel badly for, for some of them. They're, they're mortgaging their homes to put on a fashion show that nobody can get to. So, you know, I think, you know, that's one extreme. The other extreme is Paris, as you say, which is the longest fashion week. It's used to be 10. Now they've shortened it. It's nine days. Uh, has the, the, you know, fewest designers per day very, you know, very carefully paired, you know, staked out. So there's one designer per hour 
and never a conflict over where you need to be. Of course, you know, there's also a lot of control involved. It's harder to break into Paris Fashion Week. And some of the some of the brands that we're seeing, some of the American brands that we're seeing that are going over there to show are doing it. Um, it's called Opera Calendar, After Calendar. They're not really on the official calendar. Huh, I um, didn't know Because that. they haven't gotten the, um, you know, the, 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 the sort of the license to show on the official calendar, which is controlled by the, the couture, the French couture federation. So they're squeezing in on the week, um, but not in an official capacity. This season was very political. New York fashion week started out with a lot of slogan t-shirts and we saw Naeem Hmm. Khan who had like a Maya Angelou moment where he played the Maya Angelou poem while Mm -hmm. the, final runway look came out and then we had another Maya Angelou moment with uh, Mara Hoffman and public school also had their take on Make America Great Again with those Make America New York hats. How do you feel about these political statements on the runway and how each city brought out their own political statements? You know, I one of the things I'm really enjoying about this year politically and, it, you know, it's a it's been horrible, right? I mean, we're all obsessed with it, but um, the, it's changed people's willingness to discuss politics um, and and inclusion and all of the issues of diversity that um, are important in our lives. And I think that fashion is an excellent place to be having that conversation and absolutely on the runways. I mean, to be honest with you, the, the fashion industry, you know, credited with being very creative and outspoken is actually extremely traditional and um, and generally not outspoken at all about these things and has been very slow, for instance, to, to, to find diversity on the runways. We saw more of it this season than we have before, but there have been um, many seasons where you hardly saw a model of color um, and you certainly didn't see models of any different shapes or or ages. Um, so this is sort of one traditional look of models for, for many years has been tall, skinny and white um, and young. And um, so as we see more of these statements breaking out on the runway, A, it's good for people to express themselves. B, if this is a great a way for, for consumers to become connected to a brand and to feel that something of their concerns are being expressed by that brand, then that can only be a good thing as far as I'm concerned. So it, it, it's kind of funny in a way that that it seems so radical that um, a white T-shirt with a slogan on it could seem so outlandishly outspoken. Because if we saw it walking down the street, we wouldn't think it was that crazy. Yeah, I personally, in my last podcast episode, I did not feel the the t-shirt slogans were that creative or I felt it was like a little media whore-ish. My opinion is still developing on this because I've seen the other cities do their take. I saw that your um, New Yorker piece, I believe, where you had the Prabal Gurung t-shirt as the headline image got a lot of attention on LinkedIn and yeah, yeah. <laughs> and someone didn't completely understand what the purpose of you posting is that you're a journalist and you were covering a show it's just it's hard to separate people's opinions as designers and fashion creatives from their personal beliefs and then we sort of critique how they express those ideas you know 
but it is. But you make you make an interesting point though, Michaela, when you say that it wasn't really creative. And you're talking about a white T-shirt and you know black block letters. Yes, that's um, that. Either you know you or I could go down to the corner store and have one of those done up in five minutes, right? So um, you know that it, it isn't. A, and also the really slogans creative, right? that we've heard like throughout the women's marches and all of these. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, I, you know there was one actually of, of all that I saw. Um, this season, I have to say that the um, the show that that took a political stand, but I found very affecting and effective was in Milan at the Missoni show. And of course, Missoni is a brand that's known for its knitwear. Mm-hmm. Um, and and they picked up on the the pink pussy hats from the Women's March. And so when we walked into the show on each guest's seat was a knit you know in the missoni knit that famous um zigzaggy knit uh, was a uh, a hat a, a pussy hat and they were in shades of pink mul- you know multitudes of shades but nothing garish they had um perfected that um that sort of pattern that was made from the original ones that went went up on etsy um with a couple of darts that actually made the hat sit better so good good italian workmanship <laughs> And then at the end of the fashion show, they had the models come for a final walk. Each of the models were wearing one of the hats. And Angela Massoni, the creative director and the daughter of the company's founders, went out with a microphone and made a brief speech about the need for um, fashion to stand strong for diversity and for freedom of expression. And she invited everybody onto the runway for a very brief rally, you know, five minutes, mm-hmm. um, but it felt genuine in that they had sort of taken this concept, the pussy hat, which really melded well with their knitwear and what they do. And um, it's a woman-run company, a, a very passionate and active woman. And it all it all felt very organic and right for that brand. And, of course, was a message that I was receptive to as well. I wanted to go back to your books, if you could talk a little bit about what you're working on now. <laughs> um. I can talk about one of them. Okay. The other I can't. Um, so, sorry, th- they'll t- to be continued. <laughs> yes. Like, um, but this, you know, the, the the idea of this book actually has, um, it's been something that I've been wrestling with for, for quite a few years. Um, because I think there are many, many books about fashion in the marketplace, but none of them really tackle fashion as an industry and a, and a business. And that's what I intend to do. So that the the concept of this book is to look at um, a collection being made and in, in the course of a season and really understand how it is conceived of conceptually. What's the idea behind it? Um, how it's translated into something you know product that's actually manufactured in a factory? Um, how it's marketed? Um, you know what? Who are who are the people, and how does this happen that uh, that that these that these items, um, whether they're accessories or clothing, um, are are sort of implanted in people's minds to the point that they want that they desire them? Um, an important concept to me in this is to explain how something that can look so strange on a runway can um, can become a product that we want and doesn't seem so strange when we own it ourselves. And of course, that's that's the magical marketing of, of high fashion. I understand you're already a New York Times bestseller from earlier in your career when you were covering gambling, hotels, and travel for the journal. Mm-hmm. And so how how did you actually transition from covering one topic 
gambling and travel to covering fashion and <laughs> now pursuing <laughs> writing a book, two books. <laughs> Yeah, I remember what I said about stumbling through one adventure after another. <laughs> <laughs> it was um, it would stumble is probably the the really correct word there. I um, I you know, and I will say this to anybody who's thinking about pursuing a career and how you go. I, I, there are people who plan their careers in advance very carefully. I'm sure I'm not one of them. I just kind of say yes to interesting things when they come along. I had gone off um, and taken a year off to write the, the book Winner Takes All. It was about the gambling industry, which mm -hmm. I had been covering for the journal. And um, when I came back, I was sort of figuring out, I didn't want to go back and, and cover the gambling industry anymore. I was figuring out what I wanted to write about. And an ed I, was, I was living as I do now in Los Angeles. And an editor in New York sent me an email and said that Ferrari was um, shipping a, a new car uh, that was supposed to be somewhat easier to drive. Um, it was it was going to be fresh off the boat from Italy into um, the the port here in in Los Angeles, and they needed somebody to drive it and write a column about it. And I sort of squinted my eyes and thought, "What on earth is he thinking? I don't know anything <laughs> about Ferraris or cars." And I said, "I drive a Subaru with two car seats in the back. Go find a writer who could do justice to your sports car." And he wrote me back and said, that's your lead. You have to write this piece. <laughs> and so I did. And it was um, well-received. And I think it was quite funny. Uh, people laughed a lot about it. That I think for Ferrari lovers were angry that I didn't write a lot about the souped-up transmission. But, um, but it was a really funny piece about driving a Ferrari on Mulholland Drive. And that planted a seed in another editor's mind. They were looking for a, a fashion columnist at the time and they thought, oh, well, if she can write that way about a Ferrari, then we should have her covering fashion. <laughs> and so I started covering fashion. And I knew absolutely nothing about fashion at the time. You tried economics and you worked for a bank and then you covered gambling. If you weren't doing this profession, if you weren't a journalist, what else would you do? <gasps> Oh my gosh, what a question. I don't know. I, you know, and I, and I said earlier that I had this moment, like I'd been conked over the head um, of realizing I wanted to be a journalist. I, you know, I have gotten interested in one form or another of journalism and sort of have enjoyed doing newspaper journalism. I enjoyed writing for magazines. I really like long form um, I even like doing video and radio and all all kinds of ways of storytelling, but I can't um, I can't imagine doing something other than telling stories for a living, which is really what I feel like I do. I don't have the imagination to write fiction, um, and I could never tell not, you know I could never tell not true stories. I I only know how to sort of follow the threads and and sort of assemble the puzzle pieces in a way that I hope will be entertaining to people um, of what of things that have already happened. Um, I don't know in my in my fantasy, I guess maybe someday I would go off and, and live on a farm and um, raise chickens and geese. A farm. And, Do you have but, experience working on farms or that's just something you I have no no <laughs> I milked some cows once as a child. Um, no, I don't, I would, and of course I probably would be one of these people who would end up writing a book about how my farm failed because oh, I wouldn't no. know what I was doing. Um, but it's just, I do have this sort of wish. I like to garden and, um, I can, I, I grow plants 
And um, I actually, my, my husband and kids and I here in LA have, have chickens that we keep. We live in the Hollywood Hills and we're, we're not even the only people in our neighborhood to have chickens. So it's not that unique, but, but we enjoy, I like going down and collecting the eggs and chatting with the hens. You talk to your hens. Does that produce better eggs? I have no idea, but I enjoy them. They're quirky little ladies and have enough. I'm sure that on large farms with lots of them, they don't get to know the individuals the way we do. But we know our hens individually and they have names and they come when called and uh, are really it's sort of like having a small herd of dogs. (laughs) Do you have any closing words of advice for anyone pursuing a career in journalism or writing in general? I would say that you've got to look for the stories that you're passionate about and keep them as simple as possible. The the hardest thing for me often in, in writing um, or telling stories is getting too complicated and trying to get too much in. So the finding, finding that true thread that tells a really incredible story, um, it's the basis of journalism, no matter what the subject, whether it's fashion or otherwise, um, and no matter what the format, whether it's video or the written word. Oh, I had one more question. What's your favorite word? My favorite word? Yes. Uh, Supercalifragilistic. Oh, my word. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Spell that. (laughs) Thank you so much for chatting with me today. It's been delightful. Thank you so much. My pleasure. And do you want to plug anything like your social media handles or anything? Where can we find you? Please follow me on Twitter at Binkley on Style or on Instagram at Christina Binkley. Awesome. Thank you. All right. You have a great day. You too. Fun. Thanks.